Well, welcome. Great to have you all here for this Ethics at Noon, The Rule of Law and Ethics, How Personal Restraint Promotes Freedom and Prevents Tyranny. And I, this uh, concept of the rule of law, we will hear more about today, certainly concept emerging out of uh, as a long historical pedigree and is certainly something of great timeliness now for what's happening within the United States as well as elsewhere in the world. And we're so fortunate to have uh, Brian Buckley present on this theme. And I say that from, I think, a real fairly long now personal experience of colleagueship with Brian. He's a wonderful colleague. He's been a wonderful friend of the Ethics Center um, for years and helped us out on many different occasions. Um, and he is a senior lecturer in the philosophy department here, currently also a faculty fellow at the Ethics Center. He's renowned around campus as a great and highly desired teacher um, who will be teaching, uh, there you go, uh, who will be teaching his 100th class at Santa Clara in the spring quarter. So a real milestone um, that uh, we're all happy about. They, they keep paying me, so, so for some reason. Um, Brian has a JD and a PhD, uh, working then both in law and in ethics for many years. He's especially interested in the notion of personhood as it connects to justice. What is owed to persons? And has considered that theme in many different scenarios, um, having to do with bioethics matters, having to do with theories of punishment, and I'm sure we'll hear about it today in the context of the idea of the rule of law as it bears on things like democracy and justice. He's also very interested in the notion of procedure, um, you often hear that, procedural justice or procedure in law, and does think it is even more important actually than substantive law or substantive justice. So a very interesting and important claim, highly connected to our theme today, and we look forward to hearing what Brian has to say about this. So I'll turn things over now to Brian Buckley. Thanks, Brian. So you heard the part about the quesadillas. That's the most important thing, I think. <laughs> so they're back there. And feel free to get up. I don't mind. Um, so I thought the way I would proceed today is uh, I would actually go in the mode of teaching because that's where I'm most comfortable. And I don't want to sit up there and read at you for a half hour or so um, or give you some sort of presentation. I thought it would be better to teach. And then we'll have a discussion. Uh, and you can tell me why everything I said was wrong or, or, or I was assuming too many things. So what I thought I'd like to do is just start off with a story that's uh, a true story. And some of you who've had me um, as my students have uh, heard the story. I was uh, 23 years old. I had finished my first year of law school. And I had uh, taken a job up in Seattle uh, at the uh, King County Superior Court. So if you don't know, Washington divides uh, uh, law um, and courts by superior and district. And so superior is a pretty important court. It's where you deal with things like murders and, and armed robbery, as well as major uh, property line disputes and corporation questions. And so I am all of 23 years old, thrown into this, and of course the practice of law and the uh, the courtroom is quite different than sitting in a classroom listening to a, a law professor. So I go in and I am told that I'm working that day with uh, a judge who's known to be quite crusty and um, not very nice. 
And um, so they say, well, you're working with Judge Sullivan today, and uh, you better be prepared, and uh, just don't take it personally. Okay. So I go upstairs and I see on the wall he had graduated from Seattle University like I had and he had studied classics, which I thought was cool. Um, so I made the mistake of asking him, oh, you went to Seattle U, how did you like it? And I think his response was something like, we're ready to go in the courtroom now, or something along those lines. So I, I was, I guess I learned quickly that the reputation was accurate. So. We go into the courtroom, and it's 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and it's a time for sentencing. So the person uh, uh, is coming forward, and they've already pled guilty to, it's a felony. So it's a major charge, um, and uh, they've already pled guilty to the felony, and it's the time for sentencing. And so the, uh, the way it works is at the time of sentencing, almost like four different things. The prosecutor speaks, the defense attorney speaks, the uh, defendant speaks if he wishes, called allocution, and then the judge passes sentence. And it all happens within a period of, I don't know, can be quite short, <laughs> 10 to 15 minutes. Okay, and, and it's formal, the, the, the court reporter's there taking down every word, even if you say um, it's in the, it's in the, uh, uh, it's in the court record. So uh, we go in, and at this point, uh, Washington State gives a sentencing range for a judge uh, on, on most crimes. So it could be 12 to 16 months, or 24 to, to 36 months, or 1 to 3 months, or 20 to 40 days. It's, it's left to the discretion of the judge. Now, the judge can't go above or below that uh, without opening themselves up to appeal. But if they stay within the range, they can't be appealed. And this is what the legislature set up. Uh, so this person uh, com uh, comes in, and big surprise, the uh, prosecutor asks for the high end of the range, and the defense attorney asks for the low end of the range, and then it's time for the defendant to speak. And the defendant, so just so you understand, this is right before sentencing, and the judge has discretion and a range. It's immediately before sentencing, like a minute before sentencing. So the, the defendant says to the judge something along the lines of, I can't believe that I have to go through all of this. This is, this is dumb. This is a dumb crime. This is a dumb law. Something along those lines. And I'm, again, 23, thinking, oh, this is not like on TV. This is, <laughs> this, this is interesting. Uh, and then I'm also shuddering, waiting for the judge. So... <laughs> he finishes, and the judge says, well, I'm sorry to waste your time. And I'm thinking, oh, here we go. But then, this crusty, old, um, angry judge gave him the exact same sentence he would have given him before. And he said to him, he did yell at him, but he said to him, I don't see any reason to send you to jail for any longer and not, and not allow you to support your children and not allow you to do the things that you need to do for your family. And I think in that little story, when I was 23 years old, I saw something incredibly important. I saw a difference between a person and a position. I saw personal restraint uh, offered by that judge, who I did not like as a person, but as a judge, 
I found quite admirable. I think in that story, there's a kernel of something that is interesting about the rule of law. So, one of, uh, I get, uh, you all should have these, this little sheet there. I don't, I don't like to do PowerPoints. So, um, I just thought some quotes that I wanted to read from, um, and you all would have available to you. So, I first want to note, I found interesting when I was doing this research on the rule of law, that the phrase is only 150 years old. So when you say, in 1775, this was an example of the rule of law, or Magna Carta in 1215 is an example of the rule of law, or when Aristotle says this in Nicomachean Ethics 5, it's an example of the rule of law. I'm not sure you're wrong, but they're not using that phrase. They might be, hopefully, if I'm right, they're, they're using the same or appealing to the same concept of the rule of law. But do you see how tricky that is? You can't just go back and say, oh, this is when they use the word law. How do they use it? Well, that's fine with the word law. It's not fine with the phrase, the rule of law, or the concept. Okay? <coughs> so, there's already disagreement on just the definition of the rule of law. You've heard the things, I'm sure, no one is above the law. Uh, we're a system of laws, not of men, the quote from John Adams. You've heard due process, you've heard a neutral decision maker, you've heard all of these things attributed uh, to the rule of law. But I want to point out a couple things that I found interesting. So uh, the first thing we're going to read is, is letter A. And before we read it, I, I, uh, I teach this book, I've um, uh, taught it several times in my um, CNI class on philosophy of law. Uh, and what's interesting about it is the author, as you'll see, is the Lord, former Lord Chief Justice <clears throat> of England and Wales. Uh, and he's in his 70s. So I would think, after a life of, of the law, he would have a good concept of what the rule of law is. If he doesn't, I don't know who would. So look at what he says in the beginning of his book. In 2006, I was asked to give the sixth Sir David Williams Lecture at the University of Cambridge. This is an annual lecture established in honor of a, great, a greatly respected legal scholar, leader, <clears throat> and college head in that university. The organizers generously offered me a free choice of subject. I chose as my subject the rule of law. I did so because the expression was constantly on people's lips. I was not quite sure what it meant and I was not sure that all those who used the expression knew what they meant either or meant the same thing. And then I wrote a paper on uh, uh, where I'm kind of pulling from in the spring. And this is a, uh, if you look at B, B is a, a, a paragraph from that paper. I said, uh, the rule of law is what Brian Tamanaha called an exceedingly elusive notion. It's what Alan Hutchison and Patrick Moynihan termed rare and protean, what Judith Schlar thought has become meaningless, and the thing that Jeremy Waldron has said is an essentially contested concept. And these are luminaries in the field of, of political philosophy and the philosophy of law. These are, these are extraordinarily famous people in that field, saying essentially contested, uh, meaningless, uh, has become meaningless, protean, um, uh, elusive. Okay, so you say, well, um, 
we have a judge who uh, was Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, and we have a whole bunch of famous people in philosophy of law disagreeing about what the rule of law is and how to define it. And you'd say, well, you know, big deal, professor. You, you're a philosophy professor. We disagree all the time. How to define time, how to define space, how to define knowledge. Um, and that's true. Uh, Socrates, 2,400 years ago, was looking for definitions. And we still are trying to define what justice is, the, which is at the, the center of what the entire republic is about. But here's the problem. The rule of law is also exceedingly important. So we have a, a definition, we have a problem <clears throat> agreeing on a definition, but we have something that matters a lot. For example, the phrase, the rule of law, is present in the preamble to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from the UN, the European Convention of Human Rights, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and state constitutions all around the world have the phrase, the rule of law, in their founding documents that judges are supposed to appeal to. And our, and our uh, Supreme Court uh, appeals to the rule of law all the time. And one of the most famous cases, the, the uh, Casey case, which is the case, uh, uh, the standing law right now in the United States on abortion, it's not Roe, it's Casey. And they talk about how in terms of certain things like overturning precedent and those kind of things, it's the rule of law that reigns them in. Which I always thought was fascinating because there's nobody above our Supreme Court. There's, a, there's an old admonition or an old saying that, this, uh, let's see if I can get it right. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, is not final because it's infallible. It's infallible because it's final. There's nobody above them. So the court can determine um, the, what the Constitution says. That's what it said back in 1803 with uh, Marbury versus Madison. The famous line is, it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. And yet that same court felt, uh, feels itself constrained by the rule of law. And yet, we have trouble defining it. Okay? So let's take a look at uh, C. Again from my paper. Without the order the rule of law provides, private investment will likely not be made, human rights may be denied, trade may be forbidden, loans may be withheld, democracy will hardly take root, intellectual property will like, not likely be protected, individual liberty will be imperiled, and countries will suffer overall bad governance. As that same Bingham, that I, uh, who was the Lord Chief Justice, said, uh, noted, the European Commission has consistently treated democratization, the rule of law, respect for human rights, and good governance as inseparably interlinked. That's pretty three other things that are quite important to be inseparably interlinked with. And uh, it's also notable that Alan Greenspan, this is a quote again from Bingham's book, Alan, uh, this is D. Alan Greenspan, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, when recently asked informally what he considered the single most important contributor of economic growth, gave us his considered answer the rule of law. An economist. Uh, that, uh, this is not what he does for a living. He's not a political philosopher. He's not a lawyer. It's an economist is saying uh, this about the rule of law. So I think it's fair to 
infer from that that the rule of law is also then pretty important for things like global poverty. Because if countries have institutions where people live under those institutions, and you could argue that that country has the rule of law, then other companies will want to invest in that place because they feel comfortable that their contracts will be upheld, that they feel comfortable that the Constitution will be upheld, that, that certain rights will be upheld, and then more investment will come. But it, why would you invest in a country where you think there's no rule of law? So there's an economic and development and, I think, ethical component here if we're worried about trying to alleviate global poverty. Um, and then also, uh, let's see, in E, um, it, another quote uh, from Paul Gowder, this book was just published last year, um, and uh, he, which he calls the rule of law in the real world. Gowder says that political scientists, this is E, political scientists and economists cannot measure the rule of law unless they have some clue what it is and why it matters to study the things that are being observed. That is, unless a philosophical foundation is first built on the object of measurement. Because he specifically says in that book that social scientists and polit uh, uh, political uh, scientists and economists and lawyers and philosophers, they seem to disagree uh, with each other about how to define it. But one half of that group, especially the uh, economists and the people working in certain parts of the UN, they're trying to build the rule of law. They're trying to establish it around the world. But how do you establish something you haven't yet defined? Is it one of those things like the Supreme Court said about pornography, you know it when you see it? <laughs> I mean, what exactly is the rule of law? So, um, so we have a problem. We have a definition that's hard to grasp, and yet people saying that that definition matters, and that uh, if not the definition, the concept matters. So that's why I keep referring to the rule of law as a, as a concept. Okay, so one traditional definition, if you will, or concept, or um, how should I put it? One traditional answer uh, of, of the rule of law looks at constraints. So I'm going to call this the constraint model. And it talks about the laws constraining or structures constraining. And so... Uh, Madison has a very famous line from uh, Federalist 51, which is uh, letter F. He said, in building our Constitution, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interest of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place to control the abuses of government. So if you have separation of powers, if you have checks and balances, if you've divided power in such a way that it's very difficult for anything to get done without some other branch helping you, you will have the rule of law. Now, I don't want to say that, that Madison went that far, but there are people who argue that way. So if you're trying to establish the rule of law in other countries, what we need to emphasize is institutions. We need to find some way to get their constitution written so it has the separation of power, that it has rights, that it, has, um, that it fosters uh, institutions in the country, like intellectual property rights and those kind of things. But I think that that answer, the constraint model, is incorrect. I think it, I think, I'm not saying that structures are not important to the rule of law. They might be necessary for the rule of law. I'm not quite sure I, I, I agree with that, but they certainly are important to the rule of law. Um, at least today, you could argue, or assist the rule of law. But the problem with the constraint model of relying on structures, institutions, and, and by the way, Neil Ferguson from Harvard also makes this argument, 
using uh, a work I don't know well from the 17th century, uh, let's see, eight, early 18th century, Mandeville's Fable of the Bees. That somehow if you set up an institution in such a way, then it will almost be self-correcting along those lines. And so Ferguson argues, again, the importance of institutions for the rule of law. And there's a book, that, again, another book that I've taught uh, about four years, five years ago, came out uh, called Why Nations Fail by Asamoglu and Robinson. And they also make strong arguments in favor of institutions, that, that the countries that don't uh, fail versus the countries that um, uh, prosper, um, so the failing countries versus the prospering countries, that one of the most important things is what they call uh, a virtuous cycle, uh, instead of a vicious cycle, a virtuous cycle uh, in terms of economics and politics and um, explicitly talk about the importance of the rule of law. So Fer uh, Ferguson is in that camp. Okay, so, but let me ask you, if you think about the structure being set up and you think about the institutions being set up, and so you say, okay, let's take a prosecutor. And the prosecutor is part of the executive branch. And she, her job is clearly delineated in terms of the structure. But she's lazy. She doesn't prosecute as many cases as she should. In not prosecuting as many cases as she should, she's not breaking the law. In not prosecuting the cases, as many cases as she should, she's not acting as an abuse of power. She's not acting in a way that, that is reserved for the legislative branch or reserved for the judicial branch. She's just not doing what she's supposed to do. Or another case would be a legislator, and he doesn't read the bills. Not that, that ever happened. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't read the bills. He doesn't want to. He reads some of them, or skims, or he relies on uh, people who work in his office to tell him what the bills are about. Is he acting uh, in a way that's uh, beyond his constraints, uh, uh, or structural constraints? No. Is he breaking the law? No. In fact, legislators make the law. And then what about a judge who, uh, either like the judge I uh, talked about, could use his or her anger, or a judge who eats too much, knowing that it makes them too tired, or a judge who says, like, let's get through this court, uh, the Giants game is starting, <laughs> And let's move this on, council. Believe me, I've seen this. <laughs> let's move this on, council, because the judge uh, has personal things that he wants to do or she wants to do. Is she or he acting outside the structure? No. Are they breaking the law? No. Even if the judge, the case I gave you, uh, gave the person the high end of the, the sentencing uh, range and said that he disrespected the court, I think most people would say, that's probably fair. But I would argue that it's not really, it, it borders to my mind on an abuse of discretion because the judge is making it about him. And we'll talk about that in a second. So I think the constraint model, uh, as I call it, the model that uh, relies on legal constraints and structural constraints, it fails. It fails to capture what the rule of law is about. So what I want to propose is what I'm calling a, um, a personal restraint, restraint model. And I'm not saying that this is an overarching definition, complete definition. I'm not even saying it's sufficient for the rule of law, but I do think it's necessary for the rule of law to have personal restraint in government actors. 
So persons who are working in the executive, in the legislative, in the judicial branch. Okay. And so the way that I would, ex uh, oh, um, yeah, let me do one more thing, I forgot. Uh, so uh, going back to the structure, going back to the, the restraint model, another way to see, I think, that it fails is, is it makes sense to imagine that there are two countries side by side. And the two countries have the exact same constitution, they have the exact same statutes, they have the exact same uh, um, uh, ordinances, they have the exact same structure. Everything's the same between the two in terms of uh, the structures of the constitution, the structures of the law. They have the exact same cases uh, between the two of them. But one of the countries has the rule of law and the other doesn't. I think that would make sense. We've all seen in our past countries that have these magnificent constitutions, but you think, wow, this is greater than the United States Constitution. Of course, they don't follow it. But it's, wow, look at how much they guarantee rights, and look at how much they guarantee procedure, and look at how much they guarantee this and this and this. But it's never followed. So if that's true, that you could, if it makes sense conceptually, if my hypothetical works, then you have these two countries side by side, and they're not separated by law, they're not separated by structure. They're separated by one has the rule of law and one doesn't. If that's true, then I would argue that the structure is not sufficient for the rule of law. Because one of them has the structure but doesn't have the rule of law. The exact same structure that the other has with the rule of law. Okay. Now, so what I want to introduce, uh, my proposal is this what I call the personal restraint by government actors model. And what I mean by this is that persons who are in the executive, the legislative, the judicial branch are given power uh, by the law and by uh, their office. And they have a choice on whether or not they're going to exercise that power for what's good for them or for what's good for all. So there's this dispositional change almost like a, a wearing of hats. And we do this all the time. We say, when I'm a professor and I am talking to my students and I'm in a bad mood, or I have a headache, or I need to pay a bill that made me mad, or whatever it is. When I'm in the classroom, there's a part of me that says, well, you know what, it's not all about you right now. Because you've, took on, you've taken on a different position. There's a difference between the person and the position. If you don't want to take on that position, no one's forcing you to be a teacher. But there's something wrong when the court, when the uh, classroom becomes the place where your personhood comes through and what you want. And God knows we've all had those professors who use the, the classroom for that. They make it about them. Well, I'm arguing that the same legislator who doesn't read the bill is making it about them. They understand the power's been given to them to legislate for what's good for society. And education matters here. We've, uh, we've seen that. Plato talked about education. Aristotle talked about education. Rousseau talked about education. So I, uh, I'm relying a little bit on that in the background as well. That the person would know why what a legislator is supposed to do. The person would know what a judge is supposed to do because they've had that education. But if they do, and they act in their own interest, as a judge who says, I'm going to give a different sentence because I'm mad, then I would argue they're not really acting as a judge. 
they're acting, and they're acting in the power given to them as a judge, but they have a different hat on. And what I want to emphasize is that these government actors, uh, the rule of law is keeping in mind your position and restraining your own personal desires. Your desires not to read the bill. Your desires to be lazy and not prosecute. Your desires to let your anger uh, out. Your desires to let your headache get in the way. To be sleepy in court. We've all heard the, the stories about whether or not the judge was falling asleep in court. So there has to be some sort of difference, role separation. And this is, I think, close to my heart because as an attorney, one of the first things you learn in law school and then um, you pass the bar and, and you, uh, I still remember being sworn in by a federal judge and, and the discussion <clears throat> that we had, well, that law is a profession. And they make a big deal about that. And that what that means is that you're a professional. So you might be having a bad day or your child might have a head cold or your, uh, certain things are going on. You might be having trouble with your marriage or whatever. But when you get in court, your client needs you to be a good advocate, not to be the person who's thinking about his child or thinking about her uh, tax bill or whatever it is. You can't, I would argue, you can't really be a good advocate unless you have some role separation. You have an understanding that the position is different than the person. And I think that this is why, uh, I think it was Holmes who had said, talked about when you try to defend yourself as an attorney, you have a fool for a client, if you've all heard that <laughs> phrase. Why? Because that person cannot separate themselves because they're the one who is actually being charged or, or being sued. Whereas one of the great things about uh, a law teaches you is that when you're an advocate, you have a little bit of objectivity because you're separate from it. And I think the rule of law calls on us as government actors to separate ourselves a little bit from what, um, what we want and what we think. So I think that this kind of, um, I, I think in many ways this accords with uh, the social contract tradition. Um, but I think it's supported in ancient philosophy in a couple places in the Apology, where Socrates says to the jury, basically, I'm not going to appeal to your, uh, to your uh, sympathy. I just want you to follow the law. Um, and in, uh, Plato has other references. I didn't want to uh, bring them in um, today and bore you with them. But there's some really good ones from his, uh, from his uh, dialogue that very few people read, The Laws. It has some beautiful things in there to say about it. Uh, what I would call the rule of law, because remember this concept was not used as a concept in um, uh, if the term is only 150 years old. But I do have a couple things from Aristotle that I want to cite. So if you go to H, this is from Nicomachean Ethics 5. And in this uh, passage, Aristotle is drawing the distinction between what I'm talking about, this role separation. The ruler as a person versus the ruler as ruler. And Aristotle says, injustice implies unjust conduct, and this consists in assigning to oneself too much of what is generally good and too little of what is generally bad. This is why we do not allow a man to rule, but the principle of law to rule. Because a man does so for his own advantage and becomes a despot, whereas the ruler is the upholder of justice and, if of justice, of equality. <coughs> Uh, and that's quite common in Aristotle to link uh, justice and equality. And then in the politics, the next quote there, I, 
he says, this is again, it's Aristotle still, he says, justice therefore demands that no one should do more ruling than being ruled, but that all should have their turn. So we are back again with law, for organization is law. It follows, therefore, that it is preferable that law should rule rather than any single one of the citizens. He who bids the law rule may be deemed to bid God and reason alone rule. But he who bids man rule adds an element of the beast. For desire is a wild beast, and passion perverts the minds of the rulers, even when they are the best of men. The law is reason unaffected by desire. Now, he's using the term law. I think, I, I think it, we could use the term the rule of law because, as I told you, the prosecutor is not breaking the law, who's not prosecuting. Uh, maybe you have to prosecute a certain amount. The judge who's lazy is not, or, or tired is not breaking the law. The legislator who's not reading the bill is not breaking the law. But they are, they, they are making some sort of, um, some sort of uh, move towards personal interests in the same way that I think Aristotle talks about there. And then um, we have, uh, in the Middle Ages, we have Aquinas backing this up. Now, I know it's a surprise that Aquinas would actually agree with Aristotle, for those of you who know that, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, look at J. The good of any virtue, whether such virtue direct man in relation to himself or in relation to certain other individual persons, is referable to the common good to which justice directs, so that all acts of virtue can pertain to justice insofar as it directs man to the common good. So there's this virtue uh, in Aristotle called legal justice, and Aquinas calls it either legal or general justice. And it is a disposition that you have to understand that whatever you do in perfecting yourself affects everyone. And, and Aristotle calls it the whole of virtue. So it's kind of hard to explain, but it's this notion of the more courageous I am in terms of, let's say, a personal uh, a virtue, that I deal with my own personal desires, the more courageous I am in my personal life, then the better citizen I am, and the better I can help any, everybody else. The more self-controlled I am, then the better citizen I am. So in other words, Aristotle is saying that it never truly is all about you. This notion of lawful justice sublimates, if you will, your personal and makes you think generally, makes you think of the common good, takes it out of the personal and makes it for an understanding of uh, the, the, the general. And so uh, take a look at K. A man's will is not right in willing a particular good unless he refer it to the common good as an end, since even the natural appetite of each part is ordained to the common good of the whole. And then uh, Mary Keyes says, and uh, L, she's also talking about Aquinas, uh, paradoxical as it may seem, it is strictly subordinating, by strictly subordinating our private goods to serve and partake of the common good that we achieve our truest and most complete personal good. And I think that would make sense. The more we as public, uh, if we are uh, in um, uh, public servants, the more that they uh, hold back their personal interest and instead act of what's the best for all, the more that they could feel comfortable that they will benefit as a citizen of a state that has the rule of law that they've contributed to. In other words, they, they, they know that they're doing their part. And in each one doing their part, the parts are better, but the whole is better. 
because you make the parts better, the whole becomes better, the whole becomes better, it includes and induces the parts to become better. And that's, if, um, I think, almost exactly the way Aquinas phrases it. So uh, let, me fin let me move towards the end here. Uh, and so I've given you the ancient, I've given you the medieval. Look at the modern. So Rousseau comes to mind and the notion of the general will versus the individual will. And this is a quote from Patrick Riley describing Rousseau. He says, after all, the two terms of the volonté générale, the general will, the will and generality represent two main strands in Rousseau's thought. Generality stands for, among other things, the rule of law, for civic education that draws us out of ourselves and toward the general or common good. Will stands for Rousseau's conviction that civil association is the most voluntary in the world, that to deprive your will of all freedom is to deprive your actions of all morality. Also, if one could generalize the will so that it elects only law and citizenship and the common good and avoids willful self-love, then one would have a general will in Rousseau's particular sense. Now, this is a tricky concept, and there's lots of argument over what Rousseau means, but my interpretation, and I, I, there's some backing that I found on this, is that Rousseau, the general will is still the will in an individual. He doesn't, the general will is not everybody's will together. The general will is the disposition of the individual not to exercise an individual will, but a will that is, for, that is general. Do you all see that? It's a general will. So it's, a, it's taking it out of yourself. Now imagine going back to the examples, I'll finish up with this. The judge, Judge Sullivan, he could argue that the power was given to me as a judge not to exercise my individual will, but to exercise uh, a personal restraint, even though I'm mad, and, and understand of what's good for society. Like, for example, this, this gentleman's children having him home and being a good taxpayer and maybe not committing crime in the future and other <laughs> theories of, of punishment. Um, and you could argue that the, the prosecutor who's lazy or the legislature who doesn't read the bill, you could argue that these people um, in, in doing that are making it an individual uh, choice, that the, 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 they're willing to do what's best for them instead of, uh, especially if they've been educated to understand what the point of their position is, uh, they're acting in, an, uh, in a way that is individual rather than general. And so if that's true, if this personal restraint model that I've come up with, uh, which I think is very close, I, I've mentioned how uh, it, it's similar to the notion of legal justice, well then if that's true, then it's a virtue. Then maybe the rule of law, this personal restraint is, is partly a virtue that can be habituated and inculcated. Um, then if that's true, and that this personal restraint uh, uh, adheres in the individual uh, exercising that role separation and doing what they think is best for all, then I was wrong before when I said that there were two countries side by side and one had the rule of law and one didn't. What I should have said, to be more accurate, is that there were two countries side by side. One is full of people who exercise personal restraint and we call that the rule of law and the other one is not full of people who exercise personal restraint and therefore have the absence of the rule of law. Thank you. So, I guess I'll call on people now to tell me. <laughs> you assume the ex professor. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Um, the model that you propose, the restraining model, is contingent upon people's like, um, 
the belief that people will exercise. Like it's contingent on that. Why not have a redundancy structure so that if even if there's some people who fall short of exercising it, and I see that like in the Supreme Court we don't have this one choice. Sure. So the question was, uh, the question was, why not? Uh, my model depends upon exercise. Why not build in redundancies, kind of into the structure, where you could have safeguards, like having nine justices. Maybe one's lazy. Um, <laughs> but maybe have two supreme courts. Yeah, or two supreme courts. I guess the question would be that you still are assuming that they're going to do their part. Some still have to do their part, don't they? Would you minimize the probability? Sure, you minimize the probability, but is that minimizing the probability the rule of law? I would say maybe it's important, maybe it, in, it, it encourages the rule of law, but at some point, um, uh, well, it's like when I was in law school. Sometimes I, I'm such an idealist, I, I would get depressed. And, and I, uh, uh, because it's like, wow, the law, Jefferson, Hamilton, um, uh, Lincoln, and then it, you realize, like most people are not concerned about those things like I was. And I went to a law school in DC. So I would actually go down and just look at the Constitution. Just stand in front of it. Uh, four, you know, you can put your hand in the glass back then, four inches away from we the people. And you realize it's just a piece of paper. It's a piece of paper unless it lives in us. There are constitutions written all around the world that are nothing. They mean nothing. They mean nothing from the day that they've been quote, promulgated because the people didn't accept them. They don't live in them. So I think that, I, I, I don't disagree with you that redundancies are important. I think to Madison they clearly were, separation of powers, checks and balances. Uh, you could argue things like um, maybe term limits, uh, whatever it is. I, and yes, those, will, uh, those structures will in many ways maybe tighten up things a little bit. But I think that the rule of law still requires that it's personal restraint of, of government actors at some point and, and in favor of uh, the general good. If you don't have that, then what you have is, uh, you can argue, is the opposite of the rule of law. It's antonym, which is arbitrariness. And I think that's what you're trying to avoid. Can a redundancy avoid that arbitrariness of people acting personally? Well, I mean, look at the Supreme Court. Go back to Plessy. That was a seven to one. What's that? I'm not aware of it. Plessy versus Ferguson was an 1896 case of holding uh, segregation, but it was seven to one. And uh, and if I remember correctly, Dred Scott, which said that an African American could never be a citizen of the United States, I believe there were only two dissenters in that case. I believe. So even if you had redundancy, there would be cases like that where. Yeah, and Korematsu, I believe, was six-three decision. This was the decision in 1944 upholding Japanese internment. So these were not close cases. Six-three may be somewhat close, but even if you have redundancies, do you see what I mean? Um, and and I think in, in all of those cases, you had uh, judges giving in uh, to pressure, to uh, 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 contingent circumstances, being at war, those kind of things. Uh, and they should have known better, uh, but they did. Somebody, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm convinced by your argument that it applies to government actors, but I was thinking about a separate portion of what, what I hear when I hear the rule of law, which is not related to government actors, but to regular citizens. Mm. And I think we usually use that to refer 
to basically asking people to respect and follow the law. That the rule of law is that you know if, if we have an election and the other party wins, you're not going to go out into the streets and try to you know that yeah you kind of adhere to what the law says. And I think there the personal restraint is important, but I think there it's really very dependent on the substantive law, right? Because if the substance of the law is bad, then I'm not sure that I want people being so willing to comply with it. Then we get what the Germans did during the war, right? We're complying and respecting the law. Okay, so the question, as I understand it, is that uh, for non-government actors, we still want them to follow the law, which Irena is saying is uh, an example of the rule of law, and when they don't, um, how, what was the last part? When they don't, well, uh, I would argue that that's more dependent on the substance of the law. And then, whether then, we want them to, and they would uphold the substance of the law if the law is just, or and so yeah. that in that way increase the importance of the substance of the law. I think it's a very tricky question of whether or not the rule of law you can use non-government actors. Okay. I think that you can make an argument in a democracy which requires the people to actually exercise their votes, that then in the form of voting, they for in that moment maybe are a government actor because the government is supposed to derive its consent from the government. John Locke and, and uh, Thomas Jefferson both state that. And Lincoln, of course, says government of, by, and for the people in the Gettysburg Address. So that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, whether or not the people have the rule of law. Um, I probably would disagree with that. I would say that there, there is, is the law enforced uh, is a different question than whether or not the system, the legal system, has the rule of law. And this distinction is also made by H.L.A. Hart in his book, The Concept of Law, where he talks about a legal system. It has to have, like the lawyers have to buy into it and the judges have to buy into it. And, um, and the uh, people in the system have to buy into it. But if most people just follow the law because they agree with it morally, that's fine. But we want the judges to follow the law because it's what the law requires, not because they agree with it morally. And so he makes a distinction between what he calls primary and secondary norms on that. Yeah? So I'm confused <clears throat> with how what you're saying now connects to you saying that personal virtue personal restraint leads to like a better citizenry, which leads to a better overall. So the question was, uh, it seems like I'm being inconsistent to the extent that I've been emphasizing personal restraint um, to lead to better citizenry. But then on the other hand, I said that uh, I'm not sure I would consider persons, uh, citizens following the law, the rule of law. I would say that I didn't say that the rule of law, the personal restraint, is on the behalf of leading to better citizenry. I didn't say that. I said that government actors have to understand in their position as a government actor uh, that it's not all about them. The judge, the prosecutor, the police officer, the mayor, uh, when they are acting in a certain role, there has to be a role separation. Um, I think you could make that argument with the citizens if you think uh, one day I'm a voter and next day I'm me. Um, I suppose that's possible, but to me, I'm not sure I, I want to go there. So uh, I was emphasizing the ethics of the people who um, are acting within what, I, what today we call the separation of powers, all of those actors, not, not the citizenry. But it, I mean, it seems like people play very important roles outside of 
the separation of powers. They do. So. But for example, and you've had me in class, so you know this. Like, so <laughs> let's say you're the judge, and Martin Luther King comes before you, and um, and you think segregation's wrong, but you believe that you took an oath to uphold the law. And you don't think this quite rises to the principle in your mind of civil disobedience, but maybe it's a close call for you. So let's say as the judge, you, um, you sentence him to, I don't know, pay a $100 fine. And then in your lunch hour, you put on your coat, take off your robe, put on your coat, walk across to the county clerk's office and pay the $100 fine yourself. You see, you're acting in two very different ways. You're not, you're, as a judge, that's your job to uphold the law, uh, not give in to what you personally think. Because every judge seems like can find some sort of loophole or some sort of something. Mm -hmm. But as a private citizen, then, you can do what you think is right. But can a structure survive and can you have the rule of law where each person gives in to what they want um, or what they personally think is right? I know it gets tricky there. But, um, and that's also why I think education matters. Hannah. So do you think that public actors can never exercise civil disobedience in their official capacity? No, I don't think they can. I think that they should resign. So when Gavin Newsom was uh, handing out marriage certificates against the current state of the law in California at the time? I think he wasn't acting as a mayor. I think he was acting as Gavin Newsom. And I think that matters. It's not semantics. But don't you think that public actors, since they're... So authority has been delegated to the public actor by the people. So in essence, they're acting as public fiduciaries, correct? They're in a position of trust. And if their um, task is to effectuate the common good, and in this case, the common good, according to this public official, was to hand out marriage certificates, does it matter what the actual law is? And sometimes the law is unjust. Uh, yes, it's true that sometimes the law is unjust, but of course, it's the law procedurally unjust. Were, were the judges on the Supreme Court who made the decision, were they not sworn in? Were they not approved by the Senate? Were they not, uh, uh, were they not uh, uh, Well, the judges by... found the law to be unjust in the Supreme Court. Well, they did, eventually. <laughs> but had they not, and Gavin Newsom continued to give out, say, marriage certificates, the question would not be a question of procedural, would it? it would be a question of substantive justice. And substantive justice, is, it seems to me, this is where I think it gets dangerous. And this is why, uh, uh, when David was asking me why procedure matters to me so much, think about all the cases that we have every day where we want a substantively just result. We want the child molester locked up. We want the serial killer put in jail. We want all of these things. And, we, and there might be strong reasons, confessions. There's no doubt that the person is guilty. However, uh, the confession was not properly obtained. Well, why do we throw it out then? Because the procedure matters. But you say, well, wait a second, this child molester gets to go free. Look at all these horrible things he did. Substantively, that's unjust. And I said, yes, but procedurally, it's just. I mean, you have to separate them. And I think that notice that when the rubber hits the road, it's the procedure we know since Magna Carta. It's the procedure that matters. So when... I find it problematic when a public official sees a substantively unjust result and therefore doesn't go with the procedure that is required. They can always resign. But it seems to me when he wants to retain his mayor, mayorship or mayor, 
Sovereignty, I can never say that word, and break the law. He's trying to have it both ways. And that's why I think Martin Luther King's interesting, and Socrates, and Jesus, um, and uh, Gandhi. Uh, they virtually held no public offices. Uh, and I think that's not an accident. Um, but when you hold a public office, it seems to me you take an oath. And this is my last point. You take an oath as a, as a lawyer, I took an oath. As a mayor, he took an oath. As a president, you take an oath to the Constitution. You don't take an oath to justice. You don't take an oath to goodness. You don't take an oath to fairness. You take an oath to the Constitution. And I would ask uh, Mayor Newsom, do you think the law is unconstitutional? And he'll probably say yes, but currently constituted. Is it unconstitutional? Has a court claimed it's unconstitutional? He would have to admit no. Do you see? Uh, you still don't agree with me. But well, <laughs> no, actually, I do. Okay, David. I got to remember to repeat these questions. I'm going to get yelled at. Um, Brian, I really appreciate your emphasis on personal restraint, uh, and yet I'm concerned, perhaps especially in these times, how do we foster the virtues, the character that kind of induces government officials to exercise personal restraint? I'll say one great cultural challenge, I think, is the view of government in light of, as sort of as a consumerist model of government, or the view culturally of uh, everything, we're sort of living in a time of winning, mm -hmm. where everything is coming down to some really uh, utterly kind of bereft notion of winning, but nevertheless one that's very powerful culturally. How would you recommend we foster the kind of character and virtues that can uphold the rule of law in the way that you uh, think it uh, properly understood to, to be? So I understand your question to be that in these perilous times that we, uh, how would we foster uh, the habit, if, if it is a habit, uh, um, or persons having character that includes the rule of law um, especially when some people are viewing the government in a consumerist model and other people are viewing the government in terms of a 50.1% 50 I win, you lose model. Yes. And I think that that's, the, that's why education is so important. I think the Greeks got this right. Um, you cannot have a vibrant uh, society, a republic, um, or uh, any other vibrant form of government that relies on the people without the people being educated. And unfortunately, this is why I don't disagree that it's somewhat perilous. We, as I said, the Constitution is only a piece of paper. It only continues to work as long as it lives in us. When it stops living in us, it just becomes another piece of paper. And, and how do we get it to live in us? Well, I think education is important. I mean, there's a couple... There's a couple of statues in DC that always used to give me pause. One of them is in front of the archives and it says, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Doesn't that seem oxymoronic? Wait a second, liberty? Liberty doesn't require anything, it's liberty. No, eternal vigilance is required if you want liberty. And then it says in front of the Vietnam, or excuse me, the Korean Memorial. I love the juxtaposition. The Vietnam Memorial has 59,000 names. The Korean Memorial, last time I was there, had four words. 59,000 names, so 100,000 or more words to four. And the four in front of the Korean Memorial says, freedom is not free. I think those are the kind of things that we need to keep inculcating. Because people are getting to the point where they're not caring about the structures. And like I said, I do think structure matters. 
they're not buying into what their job is. They're thinking that it's almost realpolitik. It's almost uh, Machiavellian, which is fine if you want to teach Machiavelli in a political classroom, <laughs> but I'm not sure that you want Machiavelli to be... I, I don't know how you have a system of the rule of law. I mean, we, we constantly say that one of the things that makes America different is that we are a nation of laws, not of men. John Adams quote. Laws, not of men. Exactly what I'm talking about with my personal restraint. The laws will rule, not the men. Do you all think that's happening now? Nope. I mean, so, and, and what is the problem? I think the problem, again, is that civic education. Dewey talked about this in the early part of the 20th century, the importance of civic education. Our, our founders talked about civic virtue. Uh, so I don't think the answer is easy. I, I, but I think we, we need to start to, uh, being comfortable with the fact that, uh, the, that the answer isn't easy and start pushing procedure matters. Um, those of you who've seen the movie Ender's Game, uh, if you haven't, I'm going to ruin it for you at the end. Um, <laughs> That's about a 12-year-old boy, and he's he's uh, fooled, um, and he ends up destroying this entire planet full of other creatures, and he thinks he's playing a video game, uh, but he's not. Uh, but the general didn't let him know that they set it up, and so at the end of the movie, Harrison Ford plays the general, and and Harrison Ford is so ecstatic because they finally beat this alien race. They finally beat them. They 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 killed them all, and. Uh, he says, Ender, you'll be remembered as a hero. And Ender says, no, I'll be remembered as a killer. And they go back and forth. And finally, and with great anger, uh, Harrison Ford says, Ender, we won. We won. And Ender says, yes, but it's how we won that matters. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is an example of the rule of law. How do we educate that, though? It's not that we put the child molester in jail. It's how we do it. It's not that we elected a person who agrees with us, it's how we did it. And especially when you're a government actor. How matters, I would argue, more than what. Although some people would disagree with me. Other questions? Somebody who hasn't spoken yet? Yeah. Um, okay, so going off that question very similarly. So um, if we're operating off of this idea of personal restraint being the path towards rule of law, we then, of course, as a country, should seek to foster an environment in which those in power, like judges, um, uh, are in an environment where they are allowed to have this personal restraint, where personal restraint is easy, basically is what I'm saying. Yes. So do you think currently how our system is set up where our judges are um, appointed and confirmed, do you think that that system and the other factors that play into it is currently set up in the best way that it could be, or do you think that there are changes to our system that we can make that would allow us to better operate. Yeah, so the question was, is uh, especially with regard to judges and, and, uh, and emphasizing personal restraint among government actors, again, especially judges, is the current system we have, if it has problems, uh, what are they and uh, how do we fix them, especially in terms of education. Um, I think that that's a good question. I think it's a problem. I'm a, I'm, I've always been opposed to electing judges. I mean, I, I have a law degree, and, and I, in a county, I was working in Snohomish County uh, later on, um, and, uh, uh, and then I moved back to King County, 
and, and there was a whole slate of judges I was to vote on. I'm a lawyer who worked in the court. I left most of them blank. I don't know who the hell these people are. Like, how would I know? And how would I know what constitutes a good judge unless I sat in the courtroom with him or her? I spent a lot of time around judges. A lot of time around judges. And the notion that people out there, what, what is the basis for them voting on a judge? It's the result. It's the very thing I, I think we should be very careful of not emphasizing. Take, take a, 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 I once saw an interview with uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer. Complete opposites uh, in terms of judicial philosophy and if you will, phrases like conservative and liberal. But both of them emphatically said you can never judge a real judge, a good judge, you can never judge them on the result. Because that's not their job. If you say, oh, you upheld the conviction of this person, but they're innocent. And they both say, yes, but they got the full panoply of, of due process rights. What exactly are we supposed to do? Wave a wand and figure out what the substantively just result is? That's not our job. Our job is to make sure whether the process was upheld. Um, and so uh, that would be one, get rid of elected judges. But the, the confirmation process, I mean, starting with, uh, with uh, Robert Bork in 1987, um, and it's tricky because of probably one issue more than any other, it won't be a surprise to you, of why the Supreme Court has fought over it. It's abortion. And it, it started in 73, and then people have been using the courts, and this is what, if you know what happened in 1987 with Robert Bork, uh, it was, I think, fair to say, because he would have been the fifth vote to overturn Roe versus Wade, it, was, it became a sense of win at all costs. Yeah. Um, but what, what I think is bad is not only that confirmation process, but then you encourage the judges, if you've seen some of these confirmation hearings, to say nothing. Because, yes, once they're done and they're confirmed, they have a lifetime appointment. Then they can act in ways that I want them to act. Yeah. But how does the Senate know that? Exactly. They only have their past record. Because if the minute they say something on one side or the other about abortion, like, well, I don't know if a 24-hour waiting period is such a bad idea. Like, oh, no. Like, I'm voting against you. Even if on every single other issue I agree with you. And then the other side does the same thing. I'm not sure I see a short-term uh, fix to that. Um, I think the abortion issue is quite interesting. And I think it, 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 I think it really divides the nation, much more than I think a lot of people in California realize, because you're in California. <laughs> but it, does, it divides the nation a lot. And, and that's why I think these, you, you just saw one with uh, Judge Gorsuch. Um, and nobody disputed his qualifications in terms of his academics. Nobody disputed his qualifications in terms of the decisions he made procedurally the 10 years or so that he was on the, I guess, 10th Circuit in Denver. What they had a problem with is his ideology. And is that what you want the test to be for judges? Or do you want it to be the procedure? Um, so I don't know what the quick fix is. I do think, though, I'm very much drawn to the Greeks. <laughs> Students of mine know this. I think the Greeks got so many things right. And I think this notion of education is correct. You cannot have a vibrant or, or uh, um, powerful or healthy uh, uh, government, especially when the people are involved, if the people are not educated in how that government works and should work. That's my opinion. I guess we're done? I think our time is up. Oh, so please fine. join me in thanking. Right. Thank you.